Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zozan. And I am Mira Nabulsi. This week, we discuss the plight of the Syrian refugees in the Turkish metropolitan of Istanbul and what triggered the recent crackdown on Syrians in the city. We speak with Turkish professor Aysen Ustabiji. Later in the program, we feature an episode from Ma'el Amal, a podcast about an often neglected community in Jordan. That's the migrant laborers. All this coming up on this week's Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. In the past two months, the Turkish authorities have escalated their crackdown on Syrian refugees living in Istanbul, arresting thousands and giving them an ultimatum until August 20th to move to the cities they obtained the residency in when they first arrived into Turkey or face deportations back to Syria. The deadline is now extended to the end of October, but the crackdown left thousands of Syrian refugees fear for their future and the possibility of uprooting their families for the second time. Turkey hosts the largest number of Syrian refugees, an estimated 3.6 million people. And human rights organizations are also reporting that Turkey is deporting Syrians back to Syria, a charge that Turkish government denies. International law prohibits the forcible return of anyone to a place where they would face a real risk of persecution or a threat to life. To understand the background of these crackdowns and the status of Syrians in Turkey, Mira Nabulsi spoke with Professor Aysen Ustubici, an assistant professor at Koch University in the Department of Sociology and the Department of Political Science. She's the author of The Governance of International Migration, Irregular Migrants' Access to Right to Stay in Turkey and Morocco. Today, a few days ago, like there's an announcement from the, the governor of Istanbul talking about more than 21,000 migrants are now out of the city. And then it's some of them are Syrians. That means that they are under temporary protection, most of them at least, or either they are registered in another city or they have not registered yet. And then some of them are other groups with different status and among, among them, non-Syrians without legal status are having sent to removal centers that we call like deportation centers. And the Syrians reportedly are in the other cities to register basically. So this is what is happening uh, lately in Istanbul. This is the latest news, but of course there's more to that. Like July, August, when deadline was given for Syrians not registered in, in, in Istanbul to leave the city. Of course, it created a lot of anxieties for a lot of Syrians who are living in the cities because it might as well happen that the family is registered, but not all the members of the family. So that created a lot of anxieties for them. And at the same time, of course, I think we should ask the question is that why they are not in the provinces that they are registered in. The idea was the open door policy of Turkey was that students would come and then choose a city, a province by themselves, and then go to the authorities and register themselves. And then that's and then after, especially uh, October 2014, they were registered under temporary protection status. But what was happening is that most of the time, a lot of people actually did register in the nearest city or in the, in the first city they could go to where they had relatives, etc. So they registered themselves. They were given this you know, temporary protection status, but then 
they have to move to big cities. It might be for family reasons, for other reasons, but most of the time it was for working opportunities. So when, when it comes to Istanbul, which officially hosts more than 500,000 Syrians that, 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 who are registered, but then a lot of officials have started to raise concern that the actual number is, is one and a half time more than that, the numbers which some people would say 700,000, some people would say other numbers, but the actual uh, numbers is apparently bigger than the registered one. And then that created some kind of, you know, uh, loss of control, I think, in the, in the eyes of the authorities. And they started to say, okay, now we're going to make sure that people, registrarians are staying in the provinces that they are registered in, not in the big cities. In a July report, Human Rights Watch claimed that Turkish authorities are detaining and coercing Syrians into mm -hmm. signing forms saying they want to return to Syria and then forcibly returning them there. But the Turkish mm -hmm. authorities have denied deporting Syrians back to their country, despite such reports by human rights organizations. So can you explain how does the Turkish law or the Turkish state regard refugees in general? And what are the particularities to Syrian refugees specifically? Because I think you mentioned that Turkey has so far had an open-door policy towards them. Yes. Initially, Turkey had an open-door policy. That means that uh, people who come in large numbers will cross the borders and will register after crossing the borders. Uh, but then they were not given the refugee status. In fact, they were not given any status. They were just registered uh, because there are different reasons for that. One thing is that Turkey is a signatory of the, Geneva, the 51 Geneva Convention on the status of refugees, but at the same time, it's still one of the few countries which will st still retain the geographical uh, limitation. That means that Turkey only gives on paper like refugee status to those coming from European countries, which creates a very different system of asylum in general, I'm not talking about Syrians, but for all, all other groups coming to Turkey, is that they can, they, they, they are actually registered under temporary protection, but with the idea that they will never get the refugee status because Turkey is not commit, has not committed to that. So what will happen for most people is that they would sort of, I'm talking about non-Syrians, they would be resettled to a third country. And of course, now the numbers are so high that a lot of people are not even resettled, Afghans, you know, Somalis, Iraqis, Iranians, they are just waiting here uh, to be resettled uh, in a third country. And they are never, they actually, they are on paper never given the, the sort of the, the refugee status. So for Syrians, it was a different case for two reasons. One reason was that it was a mass movement. Uh, so it was, it was a sudden movement. So it was a sort of a humanitarian crisis happening. And the second reason is that it was a mass movement, like people were coming in large, numbers. So it was really impossible for you. And here in Turkey, it was out of the capacity to register them one by one and to go through asylum procedure with one, one by one, like they did with all the other cases. So what was happening for the Syrian case is that they were taken without sort of UNHCR regular interviewing uh, procedure, and they were giving the status that was not even, that didn't even have the name. But then also Turkey had a new uh, law dating back to 2000. 13 and came into force in 2014, which had this clause on this article on uh, temporary protection. So the crisis started in 2011 and people started to come in in increasing numbers to Turkey since then. 
and the temporary protection regulation that cover the situation of Syrians in Turkey was introduced only in October 2014. So now, according to this temporary protection status, they enjoy a lot of rights or access to, to different services. But of course, most importantly, they enjoy the right to non-refoulement. So that means that they cannot be sent back to Syria, but also they cannot be sent back to places where their lives will be in danger. So this is sort of the, the whole justification with what, what the Turkish government is saying, that because of the principle of non-refoulement, we're not sending back Syrians. We're just sort of collecting the ones who are not registered in those cities, and we either send them to the cities that they are registered in, or we start the registration process from scratch. So this is the official line so far. I guess I was curious, uh, why do some people end up in camps and why do others just maybe register in a city and then end up just living outside of a camp? The camps kind of an immediate reaction that the Turkish government gave. They were all located, they are all located in the border region with Syria. And the initial, uh, initially, the idea was, was to put everyone into the camp. And the numbers reached something like a thousand and it was more of a sort of red line for our, you know, government, so the numbers are already twice, 100,000, then it reached to 200,000, and still people were kept in those camps. But of course, running camps are really expensive for Turkish government. And initially, like, they didn't accept any international aid or monitoring, so they had to, they, they just wanted to run the camps themselves, which is very costly. And then when the camps were, um, were full, they turned into more like an urban refugee policy, I would say. And so I, I think you touched on this a little bit, but if people are not, especially Syrians, if they're not considered refugees and they're just under temporary protection status, then what are the legal implications? Is the assumption that they're just going to go back at some point to their country once it's safe? Or what's kind of like the view on the long run to what happens to these people? When Syrians started to come to Turkey, like, as I said, there was not even a like, sort of proper legal regulation around that. And they were even called like guests. And the guests implies that people will actually return at some point. And of course, there is this, the continuation of this approach with this uh, regulation, temporary protection, which also implies a temporary intervention. And which again implies that, yeah, there's going to be return at some point rather than you know, settlement or rather than integration in the place in the place of residence. In terms of uh, how the Turkish government is justifying these recent crackdowns to its own people, um, we know that there is a rise in tension recently in Turkey against Syrians, but surely there are also Turks that do not condone these attacks. So I wanted to get from you kind of what is their reaction on the street about this tension? Where do people stand in terms of what should be done about Syrian refugees and how the government is currently dealing with them? One thing that is clear now is that Syrian issue is becoming now the one of the major issues that people perceive as a problem. So a recent survey done for a political party actually reveals that. But what is, and the question is that what is the most important problem that you see in our country? And a lot of people will point out inflation, economic difficulties, unemployment. But then right after these economic issues, what comes is the Syrians. So Syrians are seen as almost like the second biggest problem in the country, which is, of course, very worrying because it might lead to increasing rise in, in different types of tensions in the streets. So what I would say is that, of course, Turkey has different types of policies, open-door policy, guests, temporary protection, 
and different types of measures that were taking like work permits and then you know some students even they were called for citizenship interviews they were all like i would say uh, important moves to integrate this incoming population without even calling it integration but at the same time uh, like the, these policies they were not transparent and also they were not communicated that openly with, with the people themselves so even the supporters of the governing party they they don't understand this policy they didn't understand it so at first to a certain extent they actually ascribe to the idea of being a muslim people that we, we we are in hospitable nation so we should be generous in helping them and sharing our bread so to say but then in time with the economic difficulties appearing in, in the whole country they have to find a, a reason for that or kind of, you know, a person or a, a group to blame. And then rather than targeting their criticism to economic policies, they rather targeted to, to Syrians. And I think this is quite widespread. Another very, I think, striking survey is actually showing that anti-Syrian attitudes are across political parties. So it doesn't matter who you support in the election. Mm. They actually, they all agree that they don't want to live with Syrians together anymore. But of course, I wouldn't generalize it to everyone. Like when there was this news about the governor asking the students to leave Istanbul because they were not registered, there were a lot of groups actually stepping up and then making a protest, making a public statements about the fact that actually we can live together. There are some group of people who have sort of expressed that they want to live together. This is also, I would say, a minority group of people, but still their, their voice is also heard, I would say. That it, it's possible to live together. We can uh, we can just live peacefully together. And how do you think we got here? Generally, my impression is that at the beginning or earlier in the crisis, the public, at least rhetoric around Syrian refugees, was much more welcoming. How did mm -hmm. we get to this place? Is it perhaps so tied to the issue of the economic difficulties? Is the government now maybe doing this, especially in a city like Istanbul, to respond to Turkish people's economic anxieties? What do you think has happened? Uh, because it seems like mm -hmm. this has escalated rather fast just in the past few months that we've seen these mm -hmm. tensions and uh, even attacks on uh, Syrian mm -hmm. businesses. So I would uh, point out different interlinked uh, reasons. And of course, it has a lot to do with uh, the promises that were given, like this is a temporary situation and this is a temporary protection status. And then it, it's like Syrians are actually likely to stay. So lack of communication when it comes to a refugee policy, I would say that's definitely like people didn't, didn't get the idea, like who's a refugee and why they have the right to stay in our country. That's very important. But when it became a problem, I sort of link it to two things that are interlinked. One is that, of course, the economic difficulties, uh, unemployment is on the rise, and the, 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 the high inflation is really affecting the, the all strata of the, of, the, of the society, but especially low and middle income groups, they are majorly affected by high inflation and the declining purchasing power. But at the same time, of course, I would say discontent about the economic situation also was reflected in the, in the voting preferences when it comes to local elections. So one, some people would suggest that actually the government is thinking that, okay, they did something wrong in their uh, refugee policy and now they want to re revoke it. That might be another explanation. I don't know. I haven't really talked to anyone in the, in the government. So I don't know how they reason these things, but this is very much voiced by, by I would say, you know, 
alternative media or even some mainstream media uh, would raise this point that yeah they think that they lost uh, they lost votes in the local elections because of their Syrian policy. The government might have reasons that way actually. Do you think reallocating people back to their uh, cities where they first registered in when they made it into Turkey or even shipping them back to their country while it's still not safe resolve these economic troubles? Or do you think it's more honest, maybe a propaganda type of a PR thing to just kind of cool down the street? The Syrian refugee population in Turkey has contributed a lot to the informal economy. Not that they created the informal economy themselves, because the informal economy was already there. It's already 35% of the overall economic activities in Turkey, according to official statistics. So they incorporated into that. That means that a lot of employers, especially like the, in textile, in construction, in different sectors, took advantage of, of this labor force. Not only Syrians, but also other goods, Afghans, etc. And now the economy is shrinking, and of course now they are seen maybe as less useful. I don't know. That might be one one thing, but of course it wouldn't help. Recently, one of the politicians said from the governing party said, "Okay, they will not lead, let Syrians work in the informal anymore." But I mean, where they will work then? Like because it's just only like out of uh, this uh, 3.5 million population. Nearly 40,000 of them have actually work permits. So that means that another 1 million, they will be just out of the, you know, out of the job market. And it's, it's first impossible to do. And second, it will damage our economy a lot. It will then damage their livelihoods a lot. And then it will sort of, in a way, recreate all the problems in terms of, I would say, social cohesion for us, wait and see. But I don't think it's, it's a sustainable policy to try to keep refugees out of the big cities or try to keep them out of the informal labor market. And then Turkey is also quite involved in Syria. In fact, it's currently negotiating with Russia a safe zone in the northern part of Syria and close to the borders. So so how does that, I guess, uh, maybe sit with all the explanations of how Turkey is dealing with uh, refugees? Because does it justify as well that to its people? Or does it clarify its involvement in Syria alongside um, how it's trying to now basically deal with this rising tension? There are some linkages because I think uh, Turkish involvement in Syria is very much linked to this justification that it's, it's for security reasons, for the idea for creating a safe zone, and this safe zone between Syria and Turkey along the border would actually help uh, facilitate the return of Syrians back to the safe zone. This is the official uh, line, right? This is what they want to do. Uh, of course, it's, it's very much interlinked with Turkey's um, interventions. But I wanted to expand, if we can, a little bit more on the political climate in Turkey and the recent mayoral elections. To what extent is this tension perhaps between the AKP government and its opposition as well playing out? Just to sort of uh, remind uh, you know, our listeners is that the, the governing party is now governing the country in the last 17 years and won all the elections. It has been the biggest party in all the general elections, presidential and then the local elections. I'm still the biggest party when it comes to the kind of the, uh, the person's stroke votes that they gained in the last local election overall in the country. But I mean, some things are changing. What is changing is that now the AKP government lost big cities. 
including Ankara, including Istanbul, including, I mean, Izmir, they, they didn't have it anyway, but also like Antalya, Hatay, some cities. And of course, this is perceived as a big loss by the government. And they had to change something that they are doing in terms of policies, at least making it look like they, they are now have another stance in the refugee policy might be the easiest way they can do, because how to sort of address economy or issues related to democracy are much more challenging for the government, but then in a way like revoking the refugee policy might, they might see it as a kind of an easy way out. It, it seems to me that it might be kind of an easy way out to show like they are actually sort of, they did something wrong and then now they're trying to change it. My impression is that a lot of Syrians were very supportive of, for example, Erdogan, and it's because he was welcoming or tried to present himself and his party and government very welcoming to them. So how is his party's rhetoric also maybe changed in the past period? I don't think the rhetoric changed that much. It's still like the notions related to hosting or Muslim brothers is still there, hospitality, generosity, Turkey being the biggest refugee recipient country still, I think they use it as a source of pride especially vis-a-vis the Western countries who didn't receive as much clearly. So I don't think that level has changed. They still make use of it very much. At the same time, I made some observation when it comes to bureaucracy, how they work. And of course, now since 2014, with this new law I was mentioning on foreigners and international protection. So what happened was that the bureaucracy is now very much knowledgeable of migration issues. They have a lot of policies regarding the labor market, different types of harmonization policies that they would call, rather than they would call it integration, they wouldn't say that. But what they're doing is actually different types of policies that facilitate people's incorporation into society, including language courses, cash aid, educational policies to make sure that the Syrian kids will be enrolled, first of all, in schools and will stay at schools and what they would call social cohesion policies, which is very, from what I hear is that they put a lot of emphasis on different types of living together. So this is a, this still goes on. It's not like they actually turned everything down and, and now they don't want to sort of want students at all. But what they say is that now, like I'm just quoting from an official actually, the, the big cities are full. <laughs> this is what they're saying. So it's just they want to sort of have a control over the people, over the population where they are, which is in a way not, not such a bad idea because, I mean, none of the, you know, all the countries with a sort of, a, you know, asylum policy will actually allocate people to live in certain provinces, right? That this is what is done in, in most of the, uh, I would say, developed world in terms of when it comes to asylum policy. So in Turkey, what is happening is that there was no initial quotas for provinces. So people will just go and then some provinces will have, I don't know, 25% of their population, such as Antep or Urfa in the region. Kidis would have more than 50%. And then some provinces have, do not have any refugees. Let's say in the Black Sea, for instance, they like very few people are actually, are actually registered there. So I think now what is happening is that they want to have, they, they just want to move away from this I would say less affair types of registration, more like much more control types of registration. And of course, what they want to do as the name temporary protection goes, they want to keep it as temporary as possible and they really want to encourage returns. 
And finally, I wanted to talk a little bit about Turkey's influence in the Arab region. There has been a rise in that in the past two decades almost. We're talking from political to cultural influence. And today there are massive numbers of Arab tourists visiting Turkey each year, even many buying homes. And the Turkish government has facilitated them maintaining even citizenship if they invest in the countries. If you're in Turkey, you could see, or in a big city like Istanbul, you could see ads in Arabic targeting Arab tourists and urging them to invest or to buy property in the country. So it's kind of interesting how the Turkish state made itself so appealing to Arab visitors and also to others in the Middle East region and Muslim-majority countries as well. For example, Turkey now has a huge number of Arab descendants based there. And yet, at the same time, we're kind of seeing this perhaps maybe contradiction going on. It almost seems like they're saying, if you're rich, then you're welcome here. But if you're a poor refugee, you're not as welcome. So this might be more of a theoretical question to you. But how is, in your view, this a reflection of Turkey that wants to be a leader in the region via perhaps an Ottoman revivalism project under the AKP? And how much of it is it, is it purely just economic and political interests? Well, about the selectivity, I think it's a global trend. A lot of countries have now citizenship for sale policies. So it's Turkey, which is becoming, which has become more flexible in the last few years. Now it was before, it was like $1 million, you know, investment invested in real estate. Now it went down to $250 million, something similar to that. So it's very selective. And of course, it doesn't select on nationality. Whoever invests that much of money would have, uh, would, would have the permanent kind of residency, which will lead to permanent residency and eventually citizenship. And then among those people who buy property, and I, what I read from, of course, again, from mainstream media is that like Iraqi, some, some other groups are actually sort of on the top of the list. If I remember correctly, seeing some numbers, Iranians and uh, Gulf states. It's mainly like uh, from the Muslim world, I would say, yeah, yeah. and from the Middle East. So it's very interesting how it how it happened. I think it will take a right whole book, you know, how these relations have been forged in time and, and have become very intense at the moment. But it all starts, of course, with an official policy. But of course, like with this, for instance, like Turkish TV series being exported to all these countries, not only to, yeah. to the Middle East, of course, to it can go as far as to Mexico or other places that you can still watch Turkish series. But actually, like my own personal. Um, Experience with that is that when I went to Morocco for my field work as a Turkish citizen, as a, as a young woman, then uh, it was for my PhD field work, and a lot of people were sympathizing with me a lot because actually we were watching this Turkish series and we were talking about them, you know, like which one you like. And, and then in those TV series, it's like everybody's, you know, represented as, as rich, living in nice, you know, houses, uh, enjoying the boss tours. It created a lot of interest in Morocco, in different places, a lot of middle class people had this idea of visiting Turkey. And it for, of course, it was coupled with the, with back in time, we had an early 2000s, after that, we had a visa facilitation policies. A lot of the, the countries, including Syria, now it's not the case anymore, since 2016, but between 2011 and 16, like nationals of Syrian nationals could actually travel to Turkey without visa and same for us. So it's it created also like there's an institutional component to that, like they could come to Turkey without visa, whereas it's very difficult to travel to different types of, you know, uh, Western countries in Europe, in US, other countries, 
it's very difficult to get a visa. But whereas Turkey had this open door in that sense, but they they actually came to Turkey, they came to big cities and enjoyed this Western-looking part of the cities. And then they actually found what they were looking for in terms of the shopping, you know, entertainment, etc. And as numbers have increased, my impression is that our entertainment scene have also changed. As you can see, like in the high street Istiklal, which is the main shopping street and touristic street, then now we see a lot of signs in Arabic, a lot of places cooking falafel. It has changed. I guess I I don't know if there's anything for the future that maybe you wanna just any insights on how things may evolve uh, in terms of the government dealing with refugees and especially uh, Syrian refugees in the coming mm-hmm. period as the economy is still struggling. I mean, it's it's a widespread view that we have to acknowledge the fact that uh, it's it's impossible to imagine that 3.5 million will return. So we have to accept as Turkish citizens that we will have a considerable number of uh, refugee population with their second, third generation, which will eventually become, you know, part of this society, no matter what we think. And I think that's something to remind everyone that this is, this has been the historical experience for so many countries, and it is likely to be so. And the other thing is that, of course, okay, an eventual return uh, for some Syrians will not mean sort of a definite return because, like, the cross-border relations will continue because, like, most of the time, like, half of the families will be here and the other half will be back in Syria maybe one day. And then they will continue to uh, to visit each other. They will continue to run business. So I think you have to see it that way, like, this whole return or this whole integration issue have to be put in, I think, long-term perspective and more like historical perspective. Professor Aysen Ustubici is an assistant professor at Koch University in the Department of Sociology and the Department of Political Science. She is the author of The Governance of International Migration, Irregular Migrants' Access to Right to Stay in Turkey and Morocco. She spoke with Vomina's Mira Nabulsi. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. of Mal Amal, a podcast about migrant labor in Jordan. Podcast is produced by the platform Salt or Voice, with support from the Henrik Bull Foundation. But first, to learn more about the idea behind the podcast, which focuses on the struggles of migrant workers in Jordan, I spoke with Salt's executive director, Ramzi Tesdo in Amman, Jordan. So Salt is a podcasting studio production house based in Amman. 
and we produce podcasts all across the region for different uh, people. And we also produce um, podcasts for topics that we're interested in. One of those topics that we were interested in are kind of the immigrant workers that come to Jordan to work. Before we started to record, we were talking earlier about how this issue is usually mostly discussed with uh, relation to the Gulf countries. Mm -hmm. um, but in Jordan, Jordan has a, a huge migrant worker population, most coming from Egypt. And then you've got a lot of people coming from Sri Lanka, the Philippines, and Bangladesh. And Bangladesh specifically for the garment industry here in Jordan, because there's a lot of experience, mostly negative experience in Bangladesh. But there's a lot of Bangladeshis here working in the migrant sector. And so the show is called Nalaman, and it's a bit of a play on words because it means work or what is work or what's kind of what's going on a little bit. And so the idea is that it talks about labor and it talks about these issues. And as we say in the intro, these are stories about people who know a lot about us, but we know almost nothing about them. What do you guys know about the phenomenon itself, migrant workers? How did they start coming to Jordan? And I don't know if there's anything else that characterizes this phenomenon in Jordan compared to other Arab countries, like we were talking about the Gulf states, but anything that characterizes uh, this phenomenon in Jordan specifically? In Jordan, I think you've got a relatively small country that has developed industry, developed relatively developed agriculture, and a large tourism sector. And so with those kind of industries, there's a lot of human labor that goes into maintaining those industries. And so, you know, I'm sure at some point, people came in and decided that it would be cheaper. Unfortunately, a lot of these decisions are driven by economics, that it would be cheaper for immigrant or migrant workers to come in and do the labor. So in the hospitality industry, example, for example, tourism and in hotels and whatnot, you have a lot of Filipino women, mostly, who have come to work and clean and take care of people and take care of children and, and whatnot. So you have a huge industry for that. You also have a lot of Egyptian workers that come for agriculture purposes. And so a lot of them work on farms uh, down in the Ghor, near the Dead Sea, all the way down to Aqaba. But what we learned, and what is quite well known, but we learned specifically through this show, was that we discovered that a lot of these workers would get visas for agricultural work, mm -hmm. and their location of their visa would be, you know, in the Ghorish Shamali or Ghorish Janubi or something. And what would happen is that they would then leave and go up to Amman to work as a haddis for a building or as a guard okay. for a building or something. And so technically they would be breaking the law and they would be illegal. But this was kind of the way that they were able to get a visa to Jordan and then get other work doing other things in Amman or in other places. And then also in the garment, you have a, a large garment industry in Jordan. And for the most part, it's well regulated. I think it's more regulated than a lot of other countries. And you see a lot of factories uh, you see a lot of informal kind of factories. And then you have the, the fully formalized uh, QIZs or qualified industrial zones. And in those areas, too, you have they're tax free, I think. And there's a lot of 
bonuses for those companies to be located there. And what's funny or ironic, maybe is a better word about those, is that those were intended to stimulate the Jordanian economy. Those were intended to create jobs for Jordanians. But what really happens is that a lot of migrant labor ends up being the uh, the human power behind that. And it sounds to me from some of the episodes, like people have a hard time coming forward with complaints and issues they're having with their employers. Is that generally due to workers not knowing their rights? Or how favorable is the Jordanian labor law to foreign workers? It's interesting for a couple of different reasons. I mean, one, there is definitely abuse and people taking advantage of other people. There's definitely human trafficking there are uncountable number of stories of people that are recruited from other places and brought to Amman or brought to Jordan to work and have their passports taken away or have a fee that is required to be paid back before they make any money. And so, you know, a lot of those issues would be, you know, classified as human trafficking and at the, at the very worst of that, uh, essentially slavery. But at the same time, you actually have another side of that coin where you have workers who are coming from Bangladesh or from the Philippines or or from other places that actually want to work as much as they can for two or three years and make as much money as they can and go home. And there's this Mm -hmm. tension where, you know, the ILO or other organizations that try to enforce international labor law try to raise awareness, they conduct sessions to make sure workers know their rights and employers know, you know, their requirements. And there are certain amounts of required days off and you can only work so many hours. But there's a tension sometimes where some of those workers actually want to work longer and they don't want a day off. They want to work as hard as they can for two or three years and then go home with all the money they were able to make. And so there's this weird tension sometimes I think, generally speaking, Jordan is relatively well regulated. They are worried about public the image, the public image. I think, unfortunately, a lot of the workers, however, are kind of the weakest, the most vulnerable, and of course are taken advantage of often. Mm-hmm. And so one of the episodes that we have is, you know, the first season, it was called The Problem of Alibaba. And so Alibaba, of course, is a, a famous story, I think in The Thousand and One Nights, where there's robbers who run around and, and steal things and, and put all their bounty into a cave and then someone sneaks in and, and whatnot. The way that that's translated in a modern era is that people know that these workers are extremely vulnerable. They're either illegal or the police won't believe them or they don't even have the legal documentation to go and submit a complaint. And so people take advantage of that. They'll steal their phone and tell them, you know, I'll give it back to you if you pay me. They'll steal things from them. They'll make them work without paying them. And so there's a lot of problems of harassment and abuse uh, that takes place, unfortunately. And I was wondering if there is tension around the issue of unemployment in Jordan, uh, because Jordan, if I'm not uh, mistaken, has also relatively a high number or a high percentage of unemployment. I believe I saw something like 19%. Is there tension with local labor, local labor movements around foreign migrants? I think in the last uh, few years, there's been a stronger push to have Jordanians hired and not rely on foreign workers. I think you've seen that all over the, a lot of places in the Gulf as well. 
not so much in the construction and agriculture sectors, but in other areas where there's lots of foreigners, you know, where there's Americans or British expats that are working, but you see like the Qatarization or the Arabization of those positions where they want local people doing that. In Jordan, you have a little bit of that and you've seen a massive reduction of Egyptian workers being allowed in and their visas. And so there has been a reduction of that. But I think what, unfortunately, what that has done is, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on who perspective, is that it's just risen, increased the cost of, of that labor and not necessarily solved the problem that was intended to, uh, they intended to solve with, with changing that law. So you still have that problem where Egyptians only do certain things, Filipinos only do certain things, and it's really hard to break that. Jordan is a country that is relatively well-educated, but it faces a huge problem with unemployment, Mm -hmm. and not just unemployment, but economic stimulation. And, you know, there's a lot of issues where people can't find work or they're um, underemployed, so they're relatively well-educated, but they're driving a taxi. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they've studied as a lawyer, but they're they're working as a security guard in front of an embassy or something. Um, so there's a huge problem with that. And then the final kind of, well, there's probably more components, but another major component is that the gover- government is a major uh, employer. And so you have the government, in a lot of ways, instead of providing social services, they provide jobs, if you think about it in, one, in that way. And so that flips it a little bit, but you have a lot of Jordanians working for the security services, for the military, teachers in schools, et cetera, et cetera. And in one of the episodes, uh, a worker talks about her employer not giving her or not getting her a residency permit, which I understand is the responsibility of the employer. What does that mean for the worker in terms of ability to move freely, change employer? This is kind of the major issue is the, the some of the rights for workers like that are because they're the most vulnerable and no one, almost no one stands up to protect them, that they're easily taken advantage of. And this is another thing. So to, to get a work permit, someone has to pay for that. And so if the employer doesn't want to pay for it, which they're technically legally required to, then this worker is at a complete disadvantage. They're essentially illegal in the country by not their own doing. And they can't leave because they won't be let back in. And a lot of times there's... The problem with if you've overstayed your visa or if your visa has expired and you're still in the country, then you are accruing a, a fee that is uh, building up every day. I think it's a JD and a half every day. And so if you've overstayed your visa for a couple of days, you know, it's not a big financial hit. But some of these people have stayed years and years and years. And so there's thousands and thousands of dollars of simply to leave the country you have to pay several thousand JDs and several thousand dollars. And so that becomes financially prohibitive, especially when you're considering these workers who are working on a very small margin where every, you know, 15, 20 half JD matters. A couple of thousand is is simply not possible. And we'll uh, also hear the concept of amnesty or public pardon in the episodes that we'll hear next. Uh, Can you explain that? Right. Right, yeah. So there's this um, kind of public uh, general amnesties that happen every once in a while. And basically what happens is that the government and the king kind of announce that these certain areas are going to be these certain crimes or these certain uh, fees or, you know, sometimes it's parking tickets, sometimes it's late 
paying your taxes. Sometimes it's minor crimes and whatnot. These are kind of blanket amnesties that are instituted every once in a while. And there's a history of them. You can easily argue for and against them. I think, you know, the argument for them is that it helps people like this. Argument against them is that it kind of degrades the rule of law. It's like, why enforce the law or why pay your tax bill or why pay any sort of fine that you've accrued if, you know, just wait a couple of years and a public pardon will be handed out. And so it's kind of a back and forth uh, argument and there's good arguments both ways, but that's typically how it works. So in the case of one of these uh, migrant workers, it would be, you know, their, the fees that are associated with them having overstayed their visa, which again is prohibitive. It doesn't allow them to leave the country. They simply can't leave the country unless they pay it. Mm-hmm. And there's a, you know, there's an office at the airport. There's an office, mm-hmm. you know, at every border, every port where you have to go and pay this. So I'm sure it generates a significant amount of revenue for the, for the government. But at the same time, it's extremely prohibitive to, again, the most vulnerable people. Mm. Uh, finally, Ramsey, for listeners who want to learn more and listen to more episodes, where can they go? Yeah, so the best way to check out all the podcasts that we do, including Malaman, is to go to our website, which is sowt.com, and sowt in Arabic means voice or sound. And then from there, you can click on you know which podcast you want to listen to, And then from there, you can click on which platform you want to listen to. Also, everything's available on SoundCloud. So if you go to soundcloud.com and then search for SOT, S-O-W-T, we have all our shows listed on there. That was Ramsey Testel, Executive Director of the Arab podcast platform SOT. He spoke to us from Amman, Jordan. And now to the first episode of Malamal. The episode is titled, Awaiting a Public Pardon. All names in this episode have been changed up in request. Ah, he doesn't fear Allah. He prays and fasts and everything. He fulfills the religious obligations. Does he not fear Allah? He constantly lies. He always says, tomorrow, after tomorrow. It's all lies. Everyone complained about him. What would we need from him? May Allah help us. Her son believes that I am his mother. I raised her son, and at the end, she wasn't fair to me. She must not do that. I came here to work and assist my brothers and sisters. With no money, how can I travel back to my country? Under the protection of the Jordanian Women's Union, We met two female domestic workers and we had to change their real names in order to protect them. We met Zainab and Noor, who decided to resort to any institution to help them get their neglected rights from their employers. They have been patient with their employers and their promises for years now. My name is Lina Shannak and I'm presenting a new episode of Malamal, a podcast that tells stories of hundreds of thousands of people who live with us and know a lot about us, and yet we know very little about their experiences and daily battles. We will be speaking to migrant workers. This podcast is an attempt to get to know workers in Jordan from a different perspective, a personal one. Stay with us to hear more about their concerns, fears, and hopes.
I worked with them for two years. Then I said, I want to go back to my country. Then what did he say? You didn't get a residency permit. You have to pay 1,500 JDs of fines. I told him, pay the fine. And if you don't want to pay it, pay it from my salary. He didn't accept to pay it. He says, tomorrow I'll buy you a ticket. After tomorrow, I'll buy you a ticket. Now, how many years have passed? When she was 14, Zainab, the eldest child among her brothers and sisters, paid money in Bangladesh to change her date of birth. Her official age became 25 according to the authorities of her country, and she did so so she could travel, work, and provide for her family. She arrived to Jordan five years ago and started working for a family in one of the governorates. She says that they're respectful people and they treat her gently, but they have neither paid her salary for three years nor issued a residency permit, both of which are the responsibility of the employer under the applicable laws. Today, she has to pay hefty fines to be able to travel and see her family, whom she hasn't seen for a very long time now. All those years, she couldn't even own a mobile phone, and if her family called, the answer was always ready. Zainab is not here. I told my employer the other day that I want to go back. He responded, I have no money. I said, it's not my business if you don't have any money. I want to go back. Five years are enough. I've endured enough. I do not want to stay anymore. He said a month ago. He lies to me every day and says that there'll be a pardoning soon. And then you can go. Then, the other day, he told me that it's going to be at the end of September. I waited. He said it'd be a shame to pay. At the end of the month, there is amnesty. It'd be a shame to pay the money. When the amnesty is granted, you will go home. But the amnesty has not been granted. Then I said, what about me? I'm fed up. I'll leave the house. Then I left. I ran away. According to the 2016 Ministry of Labour's annual report, there are approximately 319,000 registered migrant workers in Jordan, making up 19.2% of the Jordanian labour force. However, it is important to remember that unofficial figures issued by many international and local bodies refer to hundreds of thousands of unregistered workers. According to another report by the International Labour Organization, Every year, government agencies, embassies of migrants' home countries, and relevant Jordanian NGOs receive hundreds of complaints related to labor violations, including wage deductions or even non-payment of wages at all. Zainab is one of them. Today, she's receiving legal aid and support in order to get her rights. Yes, I want my money for the three years. I want to go home. I want my fines to get paid. Then I'll forgive him for everything. This is what I want. With regards to fines, lawyer Ahmed Matalqa from Tamkin Center states that waiving fines and deportation of male or female workers are conducted in specific cases. For instance, the worker shall be a victim of human trafficking, which means that the violation has to amount to a human trafficking case. A deportation order could be obtained from the Ministry of Interior, whereby the worker is deported and fines are waived, but the worker cannot re-enter the country for three years. Such scenarios have occurred in humanitarian cases, where the worker had to resort to this option, but it is surely not the best nor the easiest option. But when they're this desperate, all that the worker wants is just to get out of this dilemma. No, I don't want to come back. That's it. I don't want to work. That's it. 
I will travel back and get married and live in my husband's home. Enough is enough. I'm fed up of staying here. I swear to God, I'm fed up. It's been five years since I last saw my parents, or my siblings, or anyone. I'm fed up. I don't want money or anything. I just want to go home. Yes, I am the eldest. I send them money to take care of them and so that they can go to school because my mom and dad don't work. Noor is another 25-year-old Ethiopian woman who left her country seven years ago and traveled to work in another Arab country. Her employer decided to move to Amman and Noor had no option but to come with her to live and work in Amman too. Her son believes that I am his mother. I raised her son, and at the end, she wasn't fair to me. She must not do that. I came here to work and assist my brothers and sisters. Yes, she is a working woman. She is a makeup artist in a salon. She also owns an office. She travels abroad and leaves her baby. She travels to other countries, Turkey and France. She used to travel and leave the baby with me. I took really care of him and treated him like my brother. She left without paying me. She locked me in and ran away with her son. I do not know any person in Jordan but Allah. Noor hasn't received her salary for two years now. She entered Jordan as a visitor and stayed here for years without legal residency permit because her employer did not rectify her legal status. This time, when her employer decided to move to another country, She left Noor all alone here and traveled with her son. She told Noor that she's traveling on a short trip and she did not know the truth until the landlord of their home in Amman came to ask her to leave the place because her employer traveled and is not coming back. She said, stay, clean the entire place until I come back. I do not know how to go outside alone. So I posted on Facebook that I am an Ethiopian girl Please help me. A lady who knows the country well because she has worked here for 30 years helped me. She came to me with a taxi. Before Noor reached out to Tamkin Center, she previously tried to go to the police and file a complaint. Her case file was referred to the court and the case was deemed as a case of payment delay and not a human trafficking one. However, Due to her ignorance of Jordanian laws and the existence of entities that could help her, she dropped the complaint because of the pressure of her employers. After arriving at Tamkin Center, they contacted individuals who knew the employer and who are in Jordan, and they agreed on a settlement to pay Noor. The person initially did indeed pay one-third of the amount, but then did not follow through. However, this person has nothing to do with the fines, and eventually Noor will remain waiting for the amnesty. Since the time she left her country, around seven years ago, Noor has never ever returned to visit her family, who've gone through a lot of hard times, but she was not getting paid and she could not send them anything. Today, Noor is in such a rush to reach her family more than any other time. The lawyer talks to me every day and says, wait, wait a little bit. My mother is so sick. If I do not travel, she might die and I won't be able to see her. I don't have money. How can I travel to my country?
This episode is brought to you by the presenter and producer Lena Shannak and sound engineers Muhammad Hijazi and Taisir Qabbani. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter to listen to the next episodes of our podcast Mal Amal, produced by Sout Platform. This episode is produced with the support of the German Heinrich Boll Foundation, Palestine and Jordan Office. The content of this episode is the responsibility of Sout and therefore does not necessarily reflect the views of the institution. That was an episode from the podcast Mal Amal, titled Awaiting a Public Pardon. And before that, we spoke with Salt's Executive Director, Ramsey Testel, in Amman, Jordan. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer. Our media partner is the Status Hour podcast and Jadalia Easy. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening.